For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. The New York State AFL-CIO recently held a labor revenue forum to discuss the impact of the pandemic and the vital need for new revenue sources. We heard from Ron Deutsch, executive director of New Yorkers for Fiscal Fairness. Then we heard from union members from all across the state, from all different lines of work, on what they've endured during the COVID crisis and why adequate state funding is so important. Ron started the forum by laying out the backdrop of what we're facing during this pandemic and these difficult economic times. We're going to talk a little bit about meeting the moment. Um, Right now is our moment and we need to raise the revenue so that we can fund our future. So right now, New York State is ranked number five in terms of unemployment. We have about an 8.1% unemployment rate. Um, which, you know, sounds high um, because it is. Um, A year ago, um, in December 2019 through December 2020, New York State has lost a million jobs. Uh, We're down about 10% in terms of overall jobs. The largest share of those being in the leisure and hospitality industry of around 366,000 then education and health at about 157,000. But really, you know, no one's been unscathed by this. Um, Where we should also note that uh, about 98% 98 of the people that lost their jobs during this pandemic, uh, 98% of those folks are making less than $68,000 a year. So this is not a problem that's affecting very wealthy families throughout the state. Uh, This really is a problem that's been affecting working people. Uh, in New York. And uh, we're also ranked number two in terms of COVID deaths, right? We've had 45,000 of our fellow New Yorkers die as a result of this pandemic. Uh, And certainly we've seen the great racial and social disparities that exist um, during this uh, period, right? We know that that, um, people of color are literally twice as likely to die uh, of COVID um, in, in our state. Uh, and that should be unacceptable as well. Uh, and sadly, we're number one, we continue to be number one in income inequality, uh, right? That's the gap between those that are in the most and those that are in least in our state. And we've had that dubious distinction for quite some time now, um, despite the fact that many of us have been fighting on this front for a really long time. Um, we should also talk about the fact that we've literally seen uh, decades of disinvestment in New York State, whether we're talking about the um, Pataki era um, or Governor Patterson making billions of dollars in cuts after the um, financial collapse in 2008, uh, or Governor Cuomo, who's really been pushing a 2% state spending cap, uh, which has resulted in disinvestment in many different programs and services. We've also at the same time seen wealth exploding for people at the top of the income spectrum. You know, New York is home to uh, the largest number of billionaires of any place in the nation, right? New York City has 118 billionaires. Uh, Those folks have seen their income since the pandemic began increase by about $88 billion. Um, Think about that, right? While everybody else is struggling, New York's billionaires have actually seen dramatic returns Uh, on their income. So while the wealth is exploding for the top 1%, um, sadly, the rest of us are left to pick up the pieces. 
We know that now, you know, since we have President Biden in office and Chuck Schumer has assured us um, that we're going to be getting substantial federal aid. And that is great. New York absolutely needs it. Right. So uh, but the problem is it's a one time kind of band aid for a problem that's going to last many, many years. Um, it's not going to be that long-term support that we really need. So we know that as we look into the out years, um, fiscal years 23, 24, and 25, we're looking at $32 billion in budget gaps for those years. So again, while we have some federal aid coming in, it's only going to help us for about two years, uh, and then we're going to have to address those huge budget gaps on our own. Uh, and those budget gaps are occurring at a time when we have been disinvesting and we have long-term needs, whether it's around education or public services, public health, housing, climate, jobs, you name it. Um, we need to invest in our communities in order to grow and prosper. Um, so that's why we are all kind of pushing um, for the state to generate a sufficient amount of revenue. You know, we could be looking at a variety of different ways to get at that revenue. We know that Wall Street is doing very well, that big corporations like Amazon are doing exceptionally well right now. Uh, people with very high incomes, the ultra millionaires in our state are doing very well. Um, and again, our billionaires have seen their wealth increase, wealth increase dramatically during this period of time. And there's precedent for doing these types of revenue raisers during bad times, right? Every, every downturn that we've had in the economy or every major tragedy in the last three decades, whether it was 9-11 or the, the financial meltdown on Wall Street in 2008, um, you know, the, the legislature has come together and sought to increase revenue in order to make up for the dramatic losses. Uh, and they have done so um, by asking the wealthy to contribute a little bit more. Uh, and we think that's certainly very reasonable. Um, one of the problems that we face is every time we talk about taxing the wealthy, um, people talk about them fleeing or hurting the economy. Um, we know from numerous academic studies and talking to economists, you know, folks like Joseph Stiglitz, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, he's the first to say during an economic downturn, you should not be cutting programs and services. People desperately need them. And it hurts the economy worse, quite frankly. So the reality is what we should be doing is pumping money into our economy. Uh, and the best place to get that money is from those who are doing exceptionally well. Um, so I think all economists really agree that asking the wealthy to contribute more during one of these economic downturns is the right thing to do. Um, the other issue that we're going to face um, in terms of asking the wealthy to pay a little bit more is that the, the wealthy are going to flee, right? That's what we hear all the time. Whenever we talk about raising taxes on the wealthy, the first thing you hear is, well, we can't do that because they're just going to leave New York. Well, guess what? We did it in 2009. Um, again, because we needed revenue so desperately. Uh, and you know what? Millionaires did not flee. In fact, the number of millionaires since 2009 has actually doubled in New York. Um, so we went from 28,000 millionaires to 57,000 millionaires in New York. So this notion that somehow the wealthy are going to flee is really overblown. Why do people move? People move in search of economic opportunity. The wealthy have found their economic opportunity. 
Um, so I'm more worried about working class people leaving this state because they can't afford to make ends meet or they're not getting the services that they need um, rather than the wealthiest fleeing, right? The wealthy have found their economic opportunity uh, and they are connected to their communities in a number of different ways. They're not going to pick up stakes and leave. And finally, I just like to note that we do have some serious income inequality and the wealthiest 1% on average pay a smaller share of their income in state and local taxes than do the middle class or the poorest of New Yorkers. Uh, and that's something we absolutely have to address, right? That's not fair, it's not just, and it's not right in a progressive, you know, quote unquote, progressive state like New York. So, you know, when so many people are in pain and suffering, um, there really is no reason why we shouldn't be asking the wealthiest among us to contribute a little bit more. Uh, and I think that's what we're really talking about. We're not talking about soaking the rich um, or you know, pushing them out of New York State. We're asking them to help their fellow New Yorkers. And I would, I would also say that you know, it wasn't that long ago that we got 100 millionaires to sign on to a letter saying that they would not leave New York and they supported higher taxes on themselves to address um, this situation. Courtney Smith is a member of the New York State United Teachers who worked at a special needs school on Long Island as a teacher's assistant before pursuing a career in teaching. Hi, thank you for having me. So my name is Courtney Smith. I am a former special education teacher at the Children's Learning Center in Roosevelt, New York. So I did work there for four years as a teacher's assistant before getting certified to teach. And in September 2019, I was hired to teach a 612 classroom setting, and I worked with students that had severe disabilities. So in March, due to COVID, um, our school moved to complete remote learning, and I continued to modify my lessons for my students to learn online, which we continued throughout the summer sessions. Um, so this past September, I was laid off along with many others in our school due to low enrollment. Uh, the districts were not referring families to schools like the Children's Learning Center because they felt it they can be taught remotely and through the district. Um, so my students, they have severe needs and even before COVID-19 occurred. And now it only intensified during this past year, not being able to learn in person. Basically without the funding for these schools, the students are unable to receive the proper education and supports and services that they desperately need now more than ever. Desma Reeves is a certified nursing assistant at Central Park Rehabilitation in Syracuse, New York. She's a delegate for 1199 SEIU and the mother of four. Hello, everyone. I've been working as a certified nurse assistant for 20 years. Before the pandemic hit, we were already facing issues of poor care, quality care for the residents. And when the pandemic did hit, there were a lack of PPEs. There were not enough resources for us to actually take care of our residents. And it it became so, so so stressful that the people in my facility, we tried to come up with solutions 
to figure it out. We try to come up with these ways on protecting us and our patients, okay? It, it just didn't work, but thank God for 1199, we were able to fight. We were able to establish some rights, even though management refused to give us hazardous pay, you know, and I have a four-year-old who I'm concerned of bringing things home. I have to make the decision, should I work full-time or drop down part-time, you know, and it's, it's, it's sad that the wealthiest of us are not paying their fair share. They have to pay their fair share, you know, in order for us to to move on. And um, just every day in the facility with the staff not knowing or being informed on what's going on, the decline, it just declined. People just left, you know, it was, stay home, take care of your family, opposed to coming to work every day because you didn't know what to expect, you know? So we had to make those decisions and I was one of them. I had to drop down 20 years of service to part-time from taking care of people that I love, okay? And just sitting back and letting this go on. But I am a delegate and I am 1199 strong and we're here to fight and we, we're going to make sure that the wealthiest pay their fair share. Debbie Hayes has been a professional nurse since the late 1970s, and she spoke on behalf of the Communication Workers of America, District 1 in Buffalo. We represent over 65,000 workers in New York State in a number of industries that range from telecommunications to healthcare and higher ed. Uh, manufacturing, broadcast television, printing newspapers, and those in the public sector. And thousands, literally thousands of our members are essential frontline workers, but none more so than those that provided direct care to uh, patients during the um, COVID-19 crisis. And You know, for those of us that work in the industry, we knew that even before COVID-19 crisis that uh, our healthcare system had been cut to the bone in this state. So after years of budget cuts and Medicaid and Medicare reductions and the excessive regulation in the state, um, our facilities were on the verge of, of collapse. And then you put on the pressure that was caused by the pandemic. And we had healthcare workers that were working dangerously short staffed. Um, some had seven to 10 COVID patients on a shift, which were it was physically impossible to provide the care that they needed. They didn't have the PPE that they needed to protect themselves in all instances and they didn't have some of the equipment they needed to care for uh, the patient. So it is it is truthful to say that we had patients die in New York State because we were not prepared for the pandemic. And it is so distressing to me that while we had New Yorkers dying, unemployed, waiting in food lines, you know, for the first time in their lives that 
We have billionaires that increased their wealth by almost $90 billion. That's absolutely ridiculous to me and unacceptable in a state like ours. So I feel like we have to raise additional revenue on the wealthiest of New Yorkers. CWA always has and will continue to support um, a variety of tax increases and and um, closing corporate loopholes. And I know that an overwhelming number of New Yorkers support tax fairness. So um, I feel like we're at a critical point in, uh, in our history here. We have this, this huge budget deficit um, hanging over our heads. And I truly believe that we can't cut our way out of it. There's nothing left to cut. and. Um, we have to take the opportunity now to to face this crisis head on and fix our broken tax laws. And I'll tell you, if we don't, it's bad for New Yorkers and we'll have more people die and essential services will be lost and the working class and the poorest people in our state will be the victims. They'll pay the ultimate price. So like the sister before me, we're here to fight and we will do whatever we can to um, help increase revenue and bring tax fairness to New York. Richard McSpedden is a business representative for the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 3 in Westchester County. I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about uh, infrastructure, our state's infrastructure, New York City's infrastructure, uh, being a member of the building trades for 30 years. Many of our members in the trades work on a lot of these projects. Uh, so I took a little time earlier today to familiarize myself with New York State's infrastructure report card. Uh, there's a national one and the state has one. So when I looked at the New York State report card, which is a little dated, mind you, um, New York, the Empire State, received a C minus. Now, if I came home with a C minus in high school, my father always said to me, could you do better? And the answer was always yes, we could do better. If we're gonna be the empire state, we have to do better. Nobody really thinks about infrastructure until it's not there, until there's a problem. Uh, just like in your home, you, you don't think about calling a plumber until the toilet doesn't work. You don't think about the electrician until a circuit breaker or something trips. Uh, it's real simple. It's certainly one of those things we take for granted every day. Uh, we're all guilty of it. Um, but it's not, uh, if you're a mass transit type of person, uh, you take for granted how easy it is to get around New York City until all of a sudden the train doesn't show up. And then you're late for work or you can't get there or, and a lot of it um, is old, is aging. Uh, that's the biggest thing I get from this report. New York City in particular, being such an old uh, city, uh, subway systems, tunnels over a hundred years old, tunnels underneath the Hudson River, um, over hundred years old. And if you lose any one of them, any one of those vital links that uh, connect the tri-state area, uh, it'll have a ripple effect uh, to our national econ economy. Um, so I would just, you know, like to focus on that as um, there's so many members uh, in the building, both public and private, after these things are built, uh, the public sector takes over, maintains them and operates them. So there's, there's jobs on both the public and private side uh, of this issue. Um, so this, this funding, uh, you know, has to come, uh, has to keep maintained uh, for a critical infrastructure 
that cannot go um, unnoticed and under underfunded uh, because we'll all pay the price. Yeah. Bev Healy is a member of the Civil Service Employees Association who works in the Schenectady City Schools in Schenectady, New York. My group with CSEA and many CSEA workers are community-facing uh, people. We work directly with the community. Without the services that we provide, things would not run smoothly. Um, the, this pandemic has shown a lot of the economic disparities uh, in our that the American worst workforce is facing right now. Uh, before the pandemic hit, I think there's, they said there's like 43 million Americans that are living in poverty. I hate to see what the numbers are now with the situation that everybody is, is facing all the time. Um, my recent experiences has shown that um, women, especially uh, black and brown women have faced uh, layoffs um, others have had to make the difficult uh, choice and the decision to resign their jobs so that they could um, stay home to help educate their children because of the closures of all of our schools. Um, other people have had to reduce their hours in order to be able to support their children being educated. And for many of the women that were fortunate to keep their jobs, they have to take, also still have to, had to take on the task of being, um, supporting their child's education as well as running their households. I think that uh, many, a lot of the ground that women have made in the workforce recently has definitely taken a step back, backwards here. And I think it's gonna really have a long lasting impact on our economy. Um, I, I, the needs for all of our organizations are great. Um, but I really think we need to place emphasis um, also on supporting our schools and our local governments and our childcare institutions. Um, if we do not, we're going to continue to see the rise in the po in poverty um, throughout um, our 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 workforce. The stresses that are being placed on people to juggle everything. Um, lack of food, um, you know, food insecurity and the lack of uh, a decent wage, not being able to work full time, not having great benefits um, is placed in a lot of physical and mental strain on my fellow coworkers. Um, I, I feel like some people are losing hope. They feel like they're not gonna be able to attain the American, what we consider the American dream. Um, everyone who's working hard really should be allowed to earn a livable wage, to receive an education, to move forward in providing for their families. And they're, when they're able to do that, they're um, actually providing for society as a whole. I, I feel strongly that it should not be this difficult to live a decent life here in America, one of the richest countries in the world. And I think we have to you know, remember to keep in mind that without all of us here doing the work that we do, society would not run properly. Michelle Maloney is a member of the United Food and Commercial Workers Local One. Michelle is an essential worker at Topps Markets in Syracuse, New York. I've been in this business for 36 years. Um, the UFCW Local One represents us. They've done a great job in trying to push for the proper PPE equipment with all my fellow coworkers. But during this time, when we talk with tax fairness, I think your top executives, most of them 
do not put themselves in harm's way. It's all their fellow workers. And that can be in any one of the fields that we've just discussed. And I've had workers that have come to me that have either cut their hours or have taken time off due to their concern for their own safety and or their families. And at that time, they're losing money because they're cutting their hours or taking time off. As much as they have family medical leave, those don't necessarily help pay all the bills. They're not as much as they were making if they were working. So I do think that they should step up and the revenue should be spread a little more evenly. Dan DiClemente is the president of the Board of Education Non-Teaching Employees, AFSME, representing support staff for students in classrooms throughout the Rochester City School District. Dan is also a member of the New York State AFL-CIO Executive Council. During the first wave of the pandemic, um, the school shut down in March of 2020. And when the school shut down in Rochester, they kept some of them open for food distribution sites. And we had food service workers, we had security workers at those sites working on the front lines. People didn't know much about the uh, virus at the time. So uh, we had to really fight to get our workers masks uh, and other proper PPE. And they worked throughout the year, throughout the summer even, providing food to needy families. And in October, they were rewarded with, and by the way, under the first wave of the pandemic, the district, the superintendent, the board, all made a decision that we're gonna pay uh, non-teaching employees throughout throughout this pandemic. Um, But when the second wave came around, there was a new superintendent. We have a fiscal monitor from the state who oversees our district now. And the district decided to lay these workers off. Not only did they lay them off, but the 89 food service workers who were left behind all had their hours slashed in half. Many were demoted in title. Um, And it's really hurt um, the morale of the people who are, um, they're city residents. Uh, They send their kids to city schools, our food service workers and security workers, um, our minorities who live in the city and send their kids to city schools. And when the schools shut down this year, the district made a decision not to uh, take care of those workers. They live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, They don't work during the recesses or get paid during the recess periods. So it's been really devastating for those families. And uh, to to, to point to what Ron talked about in the beginning, um, this one shot aid doesn't help last year the Rochester City School District got uh, $29.1 million from the federal government uh, in CARES Act funding, and the governor shorted our aid $29.1 million from the state. Um, you know, the campaign for fiscal equity, that decision stated that the Rochester City School District is owed $86 million in funding. Um, so uh, with charter schools, the expansion of charter schools, It's just difficult to compete um, with public education being shorted throughout the years by uh, by the state. And um, it's something that needs to change. It's something that needs to change by doing the kind of things that Rotten talked about, by raising taxes on the wealthiest people in the state. 
the bottom, the bottom 95% of taxpayers in New York State still pay a higher percentage of their incomes in taxes than the top 5% do. I mean, just think about that. So we really need to get the wealthiest Americans to pay their fair share. Um, they, they benefited greatly under the Trump tax giveaway and it's time they, they paid up and um, supported the people that we represent, the people on the front lines every day, people who don't make a great deal of money, people who live paycheck to paycheck, who can't afford to get their hours cut or get thrown out of their apartments or get the heat turned out. And that's what we're talking about here. Jane Camissa is a nurse at Westchester Medical Center and is also a New York State Nurses Association board member. I sit here and talk to you on behalf of the 42,000 nurses at New York State, um, the New York State Nurses Association. 2020 was the year of the nurses and what a year it was. We were already in a very deep hole prior to this COVID pandemic. Since last spring, our healthcare resources have plummeted further as sickness was on the rise. This is no time to cut resources. The cuts will be counted to be further lost lives. If we had safe staffing at the bedside, more lives would be saved. Um, everybody that has spoken before me, it is heart-wrenching what has happened to the citizens of New York. The executive budget puts forward cuts in billions to healthcare funding in the midst of this pandemic. The cuts proposed strike at the heart of New York's most vulnerable patient population. This is short-sighted. Reducing health care will only make portions of the state population sicker and acuities greater. It invites only a greater, greater health care crisis. Bold solutions are needed to meet the real needs of New Yorkers. It is a myth that the rise in income and business taxes drive New Yorkers out of New York, as our first speaker already said. Safe staffing makes sense in two fundamental ways. It provides standards of care for all New York hospitals, the great equalizer of care, and it saves money over time. We are at a crucial crossroads. New York State is among the most inequitable state in the United, in the United States. It has to stop. COVID has shown that this has to stop. Um, NISNA is behind all of the actions taken to further um, reduce and tax the rich to make the inequities go away. And our last two guests, Mark Emanation from Capital District Area Labor Federation and Willie Terry, a retiree from Troy, New York, will talk about the impact this pandemic has had on families trying to make ends meet. Last week, I participated in four mass food distributions that served, fed 2,200 families. Over 12,000 people got fed. On March 18th, the coalition that we've built, the unions, with the regional food bank, with people of faith, with community groups, with civil rights groups. On March 18th, we'll do our 100th mass food distribution, modern day food lines, bread lines, in the richest country in the history of the world. And in New York State, which if it was a country, would be the ninth richest country in the world. I've seen people come up to these lines that have been habitually poor, that didn't recover from the last 2008-2010 recession. I've found people that lost their jobs in March, sold their car, sold their jewelry, out of every single thing, and then come sheepishly and embarrassed up to the, to the line to get food. 
a grandmother whose daughter got sick in Florida and sent her five children on a bus. The oldest one was 12 years old, sent them up to here. And the grandmother said, without this food, I don't know how I would feed them. Um, the poverty level, the federal government says for a family of four is $25,400. If you make $25,401, you're no longer poor. There's not a place in New York State, urban or rural, that one person could live on $25,400 a year with the prices of everything. This work has been great. You get done with one of these things, you work real hard for four or five hours, and you say, I feel great. This was wonderful. What a group of people doing this. Then you feel sad that you had to do this. And then you feel angry, really angry, that this has to happen in a state that could afford to feed its people, give them jobs, give them living wages, give them benefits for the people that need it. So one thing that we had is we have tons of union members working on this. We have wonderful reunion retirees working on this. And I've been at a lot of them. I see people that I recognize from meetings, from unions that are up there helping, but also sometimes getting food. And one labor activist I'd like to introduce, longtime labor activist and retiree, Willie Terry, is somebody that both helps at these food pantries and occasionally goes to these food pantries so his family can get by. So, Willie, I turn the floor over to you. My name is Willie Terry, and I'm a labor activist and a community organizer in the Capital Region. I'm also a member of CSEA Retiree Local 999, and I'm an active member of the Coalition of Black Trade Unions. I cite those things about me to say that even though I am still active and have a limited income, uh, my family and my community, we still need the support of food pantries to survive in this crisis. Since this pandemic, the grocery bills for our family have doubled. Our gas and electric, transportation, internet, medical, rent, cell phones, food, and childcare bills all have increased during this pandemic. Now, those multiple national grocery stores and chains, such as Walmart, Market 32, and others, they didn't lower their prices due to this pandemic to, to aid people who have lost their jobs or who have limited income or those who don't make a living wage. Having a good, decent, healthy food is very important for our school-aged kids, my grandkids, and community members. Our kids are spending more time at home due to this pandemic. This means that we are, they are eating more. Kids are our future, and we have to provide for them. The other groups that are suffering to put food on the table are senior citizens like me and low-income workers in our community. We need pantries and food distribution centers during this time of crisis. These programs help keep our community afloat these, in these difficult times. And this is why it is so important for New York State and the federal government not to cut back on social programs that impact the poor and working people during this crisis, but to provide more funds for these programs. Now, we are one day out of the February celebration of Black History Month, and one of the most Famous people we remember during that month was Frederick Douglass, who was a social reformer and abolitionist, who was born into slavery, but escaped to become a national leader. Frederick Douglass gave a speech on August 3rd, 1857 in New York, in which he said, quote, 
if there is no struggle, there is no progress. And he ended that speech with saying that power concedes nothing without demand. It never did and it never will. Now, I quote him to say that we as working people, we are not begging that the government does something to alleviate the suffering of people during this crisis. We are demanding, we are demanding that the government provide relief for the people in America during this crisis. And if they don't, then we are prepared to, as Frederick Douglass said, to struggle for our demand. Thank you. We really appreciate everyone who took the time to share their experiences and for being a guest on the Labor Revenue Forum earlier this month and for being a part of the Union Strong podcast. And now we need something from you. You can help by contacting your state legislators to tell them we cannot rebuild our economy by balancing the state's budget on the backs of working people. You can learn more about labor's proposals to raise revenue to fund vital services by visiting our website at nysaflcio.org. Thanks for listening to the Union Strong podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe and give us a rating. This has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary treasurer is Terry Melvin. We're a federation of 3,000 unions representing 2.5 million union members, retirees, and their families with one goal, to raise the standard of living and quality of life of all working people. We keep New York State unions strong by fighting for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. For more information on the labor movement in New York, visit nysaflcio.org. Until next time, stay union and stay strong.